Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Women's Health Podcast where we speak to Teresa Wasser, who is a wonderful physiotherapist, CrossFit enthusiast, physiotherapist legend, I'm going to say. And she talks to us all about how we can adapt training for people with symptoms that are to do with pelvic health or pain um, or anything really. So welcome to the episode. We hope you enjoy it. Make sure you share it with all your friends and we'll see you soon. Welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Marika Hart from Herosphere. And I'm Anthony Lowe, the Physio Detective. Together we interview leading authorities, answer questions, and share our thoughts to provide the general public with the best quality information we can find on all aspects of women's health. Please remember the materials and content on this podcast are intended as general information and for entertainment purposes only. They are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now it's time to get cracking with the episode, so whether you're out walking your dog, driving the kids to school, or just sitting back enjoying a glass of wine, we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Lowe, <laughs> and with me is Marika Hart. Welcome, Marika. Oh, this is doing weird stuff to my teeth. <laughs> I've changed my virtual background, and it's giving me aquamarine teeth now. I'm just going to change that. I'm just going to change that. Hello, everyone. There we go, Ooh. back to normal. Hi, and hello, Teresa. Hi. Teresa in Canada, who can actually, who has better internet than, than me. Sniff. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Yeah, you're, you're in Edmond, or you're in our, uh, Leduc, in, which yeah. is south of Edmonton, That's in Alberta, so Canada, Canada, that is. And it's such a great uh, pleasure and privilege to have you on the podcast Teresa. Um, and it's such a fantastic thing. And just for people who don't know, on screen right now, Teresa and Marika, if if I get the Rona and heaven forbid something happens to me, like <laughs> these two, but particularly <laughs> <The Rona. laughs> Teresa, are other people that would take my work forwards. If there's anything useful to be had, I can 100% trust both Teresa and Marika to be able to present any courses that I had to present if I couldn't do them. So thank you very much for being here, Teresa. And I'm excited to bring to everybody what you developed out of the course, which is a simple framework on how to um, consider all the different options of doing something different. Um, and I'm excited for, for people to hear that. So uh, do you want to just start by giving us a little bit about you and your background and, um, you know, your journey to where you are today, please? Sure. So I'm Teresa and I'm an orthopedic and pelvic health physiotherapist. And as Antonieri, um, I'm in Leduc, Alberta. Um, and I started my journey really and truly as a manual therapist. So coming right out of school, it was how can I get all of my orthopedic levels as quickly as I could. Um, I really felt that I just needed to hone my skills, get better palpation skills, um, train with the best of the best um, manual and manipulative therapists, and that that would be the answer for me to be able to fix all of my patients. Um, and I really did um, you know, take on that responsibility, that role of the fixer. Um, I also added dry needling under my belt and I was very successful, um, always had 
a book schedule and really enjoyed my job. But at the same time, you know, I started to see that there were people that I wasn't getting better. And that was really frustrating. And, you know, I felt a little bit like, well, there must be something that I'm missing. It must be that I don't have the right tools in my toolbox, or maybe I just am not picking up the thing that I should be picking up. I'm not feeling the dysfunction that I should be feeling. Uh, I'm missing something here. Um, and sometimes I would refer some of my patients that were not progressing as I would expect them to onto, um, you know, someone who was a bit more master than I would. Um, and what I started to notice when I did this was that those people often were not getting them better either. Um, and I also noticed um, that I would have people come to me who had been to see people that were far more experienced, very, you know, respected physios. Uh, in my area, and they came to me for failure to progress as well. Um, and at the same time, I started to really dive a lot more into some pain science education. Um, and I flew out to Vancouver and I saw Lerner Mosley talk. I'd seen him uh, at a conference previously. And I just really had this feeling that this was part of what I was missing. Um, and so basically that sort of launched me into learning as much as I could about pain science um, and really started to challenge a lot of my beliefs that I had in terms of what physiotherapy was supposed to look like. Um, and I remember because at the time um, I was also clinical lead for a busy clinic, which meant that I was also part of my job was mentoring new grads um, and the junior staff. Um, and it's one of those things I look back on and, you know, like I'm sure everyone else, I was doing the best that I could with the knowledge that I had. Um, but I can remember um, saying to them that every person that walked through the door should have their hands placed on them, you know, assuming consent, obviously. But I felt like manual therapy, yes, I was doing exercise, yes, I was doing education, um, but I felt like manual therapy was something that every patient deserved to receive in some form if it was desired. Um, and now I look back on that and I've gone through this full kind of transformation um, in part because of the pain science stuff that I learned that really challenged a lot of the stuff that I had um, you know, been taught and the beliefs that I had. Um, and then I met Anthony. Um, and that was kind of along the same line that I was doing a lot of stuff in pain science. And um, from meeting him first, um, when he came to Edmonton for a seminar, um, I decided to sign up for his mentorship um, and went through his mentorship uh, masterclass. Um, and really, that has kind of, how long has that been now? That's got to be like... Um... Well, two years. yeah, two years, 2018. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, you know, that was for me, probably the most transformative thing because now I had someone who, you know, really appreciated my questioning and who had also asked some of the same questions that I had been asking and who had been on a very similar journey. Um, and so it really helped to give me confidence that the questions that I were asking were good questions to be asking. Um, and encouraged me to continue to ask more and more and more questions. Um, and my practice really evolved away from manual therapy. And while it still plays a little bit of a role, um, it is much more 
um, striving towards that biopsychosocial model. Um, and I say striving because I think that we're all striving. You know, we all, uh, no matter where we are, I think in our journeys, um, there's always more that we can do to truly embody that model more. Um, but pain science definitely influences um, my practice. Um, exercise science really influences my practice as well. Um, and I've also added the piece of pelvic health physiotherapy. Um, and I don't know if you want me to, I feel like I'm going on and on about this, <laughs> but if that's okay. Um, just to share with you guys a little bit more about the journey that I went through to become a pelvic health physio. It is not something that I ever expected. Um, so I was not the person who, you know, going through university was like women's health, pelvic health, this is my direction. And in fact, if you had chatted with me even five years ago um, and said, you're going to be doing pelvic health, I would have told you that you were crazy. <laughs> I had uh, really you know, not a lot of interest in doing that. I was very, very happy to within an orthopedic musculoskeletal world and then refer on to other therapists um, who specialize in that area when it was appropriate to do so. Um, but um, after I went through Antony's mentorship program and I started to uh, work as a teaching assistant on the female athlete course, um, I really started to learn a lot more about pelvic health and being a questioner i just wanted to know all the things um, and so part of it was me going to my level one pelvic health introductory course um, and i think i actually messaged uh marika um, i don't know marika if you remember that or not um, but i messaged you that weekend because i literally was blown away and I was like, why have I not been doing this forever? Um, it was, you know, so many light bulbs were going off and all the things that I thought were scary actually were not scary at all. And it was so cool um, and it was just amazing. And so now I get to be in this super, super cool world, which Marika is also in, where we get to combine musculoskeletal and pelvic health physio and I feel like this is now um, a place where I truly feel like I'm, again, striving towards being holistic, um, where it's not just about, okay, I'm going to look at all of you and I'm going to treat all of these different pieces within a biopsychosocial model as close to it as we can. But for that pelvic health piece, I'm going to refer you on. Now I get to do all of it. Um, and so that's been super, super fun. Well, you're like my Canadian twin. This is a crazy story to hear because I'm like, whoa, hey, wait, hang on. Wow. <laughs> That's there were just so many both. parallels. It was kind of crazy, Teresa. Thank you for... <laughs> that was really funny. Um, I had exactly the same process going through my mind when moving, uh, working within within women's health sort of field, working with sending everything off to the pelvic health physios. I was like, I'm not going to, no, I'm not interested. No, you know, yeah, same thing about five years ago. I was saying to my, and all my pelvic health physio friends were saying, you are going to join us. And I was like, <laughs> no, not interested. Yeah. You girls can do all that. Send them to me when, when they need rehab. 
-hmm. and then did that first course and went, oh, okay. (laughs) This has just opened up a whole new world and now I'm doing a master's degree in it. So yes, I feel you because it's, and it's so interesting and there's so much to learn and I have learned so much and then I can see there is just this huge amount more to learn um, and it's fascinating and it's, uh, it's, a, it's an exciting journey to be on, isn't it? It is. And I love um, coming to it from a musculoskeletal background and from an exercise science background because I feel like it gives um, a new perspective. Um, and the fact mm-hmm. that I'm jumping in here as opposed to, you know, being brought along from the beginning, um, I feel like I can look at things in a different way than what I sometimes see in um, some of my colleagues and people that I meet on the course who have only stayed within the pelvis. Yeah. Oh, it's... sorry. Oh, hang on. I just lost my sound. <laughs> it's um, it's 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 so oh. true, um, Teresa, and and having that, it's not only musculoskeletal. So yes, you have your ortho background as well. But you also understand sport, you understand high performance, um, mm-hmm. you know, you, you understand all of those things. Um, and so being able to, to combine your ortho skills with your sports performance, with your pelvic health knowledge, and the fact that you lift, you run, you are able to do things at a relatively high level compared to the average person. Um, that's why I always refer to you as a triple threat. And I, I heard from somebody and I called her a quad threat because she's like national level competitor type thing, right? They're the quad threats, high level athlete, super high level athlete. Um, you know, you coach as well. So mm-hmm. it's exactly what we need in women's health because we need an understanding of all of those facets. Um, and the both of you do things that that I won't be doing and I am grateful for people like you. So tell us about what tips is T double I double P double S and like, you know, the the O C D it's not really O C D, but you know, it's just like can we just add another T so that it's double T double I double P double S? Um tell us about tips and F C and and what's that? How did that come about? And tell us briefly what it is. Sure. Um, So TIPS is an acronym that I came up with. um, And the reason that I came up with this was after going to a number of the female athlete courses and then also spending some time in the female athlete Facebook group, which is a group that's dedicated to graduates of the course. So once you do the course, you get access to that. And it's basically a a safe place that people can ask questions. Um, And what I kept seeing was graduates of the course and people that were on the course were struggling with putting this all together. Um, So within the course, we go through a number of different ways that we can, as Antony will say, do something different. Um, But then people would get sometimes a little bit caught up in terms of what to do next. So say they had someone in front of them, um, a client who, you know, had leaking or a client who had pelvic organ prolapse symptoms or a client who had pain and they were trying to troubleshoot that a little bit and see if they could come up with a solution to help to resolve these symptoms or lessen these symptoms they may be able to do a couple things but then they would kind of get stuck and not sure well what else can i try and what should i do and um you know it would be like well 
we went through all of these other things in the course, but I realized that we really needed a way that kind of simplified and condensed everything together so that people could go back to that um, and be able to be like, oh, well, I haven't looked at this. I haven't looked at this. And hopefully that will help to feed into more creativity and more options and more considerations for things that they can look at in changing the, the individual's experience. And that's really what we're trying to do with tips. Um, so this is something that I apply in my clinical practice. Um, and it's something that I apply for sure in my pelvic health patients, but this is also exactly the same stuff that I apply in my MSK population as well. Um, so, you know, We'll talk today mostly in terms of um, women's health because it's a women's health podcast. Um, but this is also the exact same thing that we can use for um, pain or other symptoms that, uh, that people may be experiencing. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's, it's, really, um, it's really fun. And obviously, you know, I, I'm annoyed at myself for not having created such a simple framework. Um, so, and so now, Teresa's material mm -hmm. with her with her business on it and fully attributed to her is now part of the Female Athlete course. Thank you for letting me use that stuff. Um, can you tell us what the acronyms are, what the names yeah. are? Sure, so what I'll do is I'll go through um, just a quick overview of what TIPS is. Um, so the first T, uh, well, the only T is tension. So, yeah. Um, so tension is basically the idea of, you know, Antony's um, saying is tension to task. So with tension for any given task, there likely exists an optimal amount of tension, sort of that Goldilocks principle. Um, we don't want too much tension. We don't want too little. So when we are looking at um, a do something different, we may want to consider changing the tension. We may want to dial the tension up, we may want to dial it down, or we may want to spread it around. Um, and we may be looking at global tension, so that full body tension. So if anyone's been in the CrossFit gym and you've seen someone trying to squeeze out those last couple level unders uh, before they fatigue out, and see that high tension strategy or it could be local tension. So it could be that someone is really great at creating a lot of muscle recruitment in one focal area within their body. Um, so, you know, basically globally, locally, do we want to dial it up, dial it down or spread it around? Um, the first I is impact. And this basically refers to impacts either with your own body. So if you're running or jumping, um, the amount of impact that, you know, could be occurring with those movements. Um, as well as any impacts when we start to add in other things. So if we're adding in a barbell and we're thinking about the catch of the barbell, or if we're thinking about someone who's playing softball and the impact of the bat or a stick. Um, so other impacts as well. And we want to think about how can we potentially change the amount of impact, but also how can we potentially change the way that our body is attenuating that impact. So a way to think about that is if you have someone who is jumping off a box, I can change the amount of impact by doing something like um, decreasing the height of the box. Um, and if um, I want to change how they attenuate it, it could be that I'm going to um, keep the box height the same, but now I'm going to ask them to land more softly. So if that, if that makes sense there. Um, so that's impact. The next I is irritability. 
Um, so specifically for pelvic health concerns, if we're having incontinence, there are irritability factors with respect to the bladder. Um, so if I have bladder irritants in my diet or I'm dehydrated and that concentrated urine is acting as a bladder irritant, then that's going to make it harder for me to remain continent. Um, if I'm struggling with gas or fecal incontinence, then there could be some GI irritability that I might need to look at um, with respect to food sensitivities and things like that. Um, and then I can also look at irritability from the standpoint of symptom irritability. So how irritable are those symptoms? So one of my favorite terms is Greg Lehman's um, calm it down, build it back up. He uses different words. <laughs> but um, so if someone, Yeah, yeah, slightly different. Um, but if someone's symptoms are really, uh, their irritability is really high, maybe that's something that we need to consider, that maybe we need to look at what can we do to bring that irritability down in order for us to move forward. Um, moving on to the P's, the first P is posture and positions. Um, and really these are much the same, but posture is more referring to something that's fairly static. Um, whereas positions is thinking about a dynamic movement where we're moving through quickly, um, a system of positions um, or alignments um, as we go through that. So if we think about something like running, um, the posture of our torso stays fairly static. Um, if we compare that to something like a snatch, we are moving through um, positions very quickly as we do that movement. Um, now, a couple things that I always want to talk about when it comes to posture and position is um, that we don't subscribe to the notion that there is good and bad posture. Um, so, you know, it's really important when we're talking about this with our clients that we're not saying, well, that posture is bad. Um, and so this kind of comes into, we'll often say, not forever, but for now. Um, and as soon as we take something off the table, we need to also be thinking about how quickly can we add that back in. Um, so it could be that, um, you know, just looking at um, running as an example, if I am changing the, the position of the torso, um, it's not that their position was bad and that they shouldn't have done that. It's just that this is something different. And if this leads to an improvement in their symptoms of their performance, then it's something that we might want to change, but not that they can't go back to doing it in other ways. Um, if we're thinking about how someone picks up their toddler from the ground, the same thing applies. Um, so it's not that we take postures off the table and that there are certain postures that are good and other postures that are bad. It's just that for now, we may have certain um, postures that are uh, changing our symptoms in a positive manner. And if that's the case, then we wanna go with those. Uh, the next P is pressure. Um, and pressure really comes down to um, intra-abdominal pressure. That's really what we're talking about. Um, and pressure is you know, basically um, modified by our breath. So how we breathe, our rate of respiration, how big of a breath we're taking. Um, whether we're doing a bit of a breath hold, if we are doing a breath hold, on what volume of air in our lungs are we doing that? How are we exhaling? Are we exhaling um, against some expiratory pressure? Um, and also how are we, um, sorry, I just need to take a drink. <clears throat> and also how are we modulating 
um, the canister. Um, so our core canister, we can change pressure by changing that. And we can do that either by um, muscle recruitment. Um, so if we think about we're contracting the pelvic floor more, more relative to other um, parts of the canister, or are we getting more um, recruitment of those abdominal muscles? Maybe those uh, obliques are really kicking in. Um, or conversely, are we relatively relaxing those muscles? And then also, are there external things that could be adding pressure onto that canister, such as a weightlifting belt, such as a baby that we're carrying um, on our tummy um, or on our back with a carrier that's strapped on? These sort of things that can potentially be changing um, that intra-abdominal pressure. Um, moving on to the S's, the first S is strategy. And strategy really is the how. Um, so how does it look? What is the technique? Um, and what are the scaling options? Um, so again, we can think about um, any movement and we can think about uh, an exercise in the CrossFit gym. And coaches will be really good at this. Strategy is really how would you scale that movement? Um, so how would you potentially change the load? How would you potentially change the speed? How would you potentially change the range of motion? Um, maybe you might even change the movement altogether such that you're still trying to preserve whatever the intention was, um, but maybe you're making it look a little bit differently. Um, and also technique stuff. Um, so even if you are preserving the exact same movement, how can we potentially make that look different? How can we change the technique? Um, so that strategy. Uh, and then the last S is sensitivity. And sensitivity is really where the pain science, fe pain science piece fits into this. Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm like getting a little cold here. It's not the Rona, don't worry. I was gonna say, if you, if you cough <laughs> these days, you feel like you have to hide in a hole, right? Like right, yes, for sure. Um, so where was I? Yes, sensitivity. So, what I want to bring this back to here is we can think about um, all the things that our body experiences are, you know, very commonly produced by our central nervous system. So if we think about something like pain, um, pain is produced in the central nervous system in response to real or perceived threat. Um, and the, the key thing there is perceived. So yes, we can have real threat. We can certainly have issues in the tissues that are directly contributing to that but it's not necessary for us to have pain. And regardless of what the issues in the tissues are, if they're present, we can dial things up or we can dial things down um, by changing um, that threat. Um, and so one of the, the principles that we talk a lot about in the female athlete is Antony's BAMS. Um, so BAMS are beliefs, attitudes, meaning, and story. Um, so if someone has a lot of fear of movement, that's going to be feeding into their sensitivity. Um, if they have, you know, the story that, um, uh, you know, if they do high impact uh, exercise, then, you know, their uterus is going to fall out. Someone's told them something like that. Um, you know, our, our language, our words, all the things that they have been told, um, that can really carry a lot of weight. Um, and that can influence uh, the sensitivity of their system. Um, how they've slept, 
how much um, uh, sympathetic nervous system activity do they have versus parasympathetic. So if someone is stressed out all the time, they've got a stressful job, they come home, um, their kids and their family life is really stressful, um, they don't really have any kind of outlet, um, then that's going to crank up that sensitivity in many cases as well. Um, and then even outside of pain, we can also start to think about other symptoms. Um, so if we think about things like um, uh, prolapse symptoms, we know um, that the structural changes of prolapse are not always well correlated with the symptoms. Um, so if that's the case, if we can have someone who has um, you know, a grade one prolapse where their symptoms are really devastating for them, very, very significant, and yet we can have someone, on the other hand, who has like a grade three prolapse and has really not any symptoms at all, how can that be? Um, and of course, we know the answer to that, and the answer to that really is insensitivity. What is the nervous system doing? How, is the, how are we processing that, that incoming information? Um, there can be, in some cases, a lot of hypervigilance, so people can have a lot of fear. Um, they can be all the time constantly thinking about what's happening with their pelvic floor. Um, and so how can we potentially change sensitivity? Um, and certainly there are things that we can think of on a longer term, broader scope, things like trying to optimize sleep, things like trying to have maybe some deep breathing or meditation practice throughout the day, um, encouraging people go for walks outdoors uh, in the fresh air, things like that, things that are trying to bring um, a bit more parasympathetic uh, input. Um, but we can also think within the session with our clients, how can we potentially change their sensitivity? Um, and the things that I think about with that are things like um, being very strengths focused. Um, and what I mean by that is um, that we really highlight for the person that we're working with all the things that they're doing right. Um, you know, really try and build up their confidence, point out all the areas where their body is already winning for them. Um, we can also use things like music and distraction. So if you have someone who is really thinking about um, their pelvic floor as an example, um, maybe trying to get them to think about something totally different. It could be something like, okay, I want you to think about you're doing some skipping. I'm going to draw a box on uh, with chalk on the, the ground, and you're going to just try and stay within that box. And then their brain has something else to think about, and that can potentially create a change in their experience, a change in their symptoms. Um, and there's so many more different ideas. Um, but many, many different ways that we can potentially impact um, that, uh, that aspect. Um, so that's tips. So again, just to recap, we've got tension, impact, irritability, posture and position, which are one, uh, pressure, strategy, and sensitivity. Uh, and that's tips. Now, after tips, and tips, you know, all of those little tips there, you wanna um, remember that those are, they're kind of interlinked, right? So, you know, you don't have to look at all of them. There may be just one that is the thing that you need to look at for your patient. Um, but oftentimes changing one will automatically change another one, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm being clear there. But if I change tension, I'm going to change pressure, right? Or if I change pressure, I'm going to change tension. Or if I change strategy, I'm going to be changing other things as well. Like nothing is, like they're not silos. It's just whichever way you want to come at it and look at it. 
Um, but then after we've optimized tips, we also want to look at what we call FC. So it's tips FC. Um, and the F stands for fatigue. Um, and fatigue is really looking at the short term. Um, so if you have someone and they're creating some symptoms, we want to consider is fatigue playing a role here? Um, and, you know, probably you've either experienced this yourself or you've had a patient experience this where they'll say something like, oh, I'm good with double unders, um, but if it's at the end of my workout or at a certain point, then I leave. Our system has um, a tolerance level. And sometimes when we get fatigued, so overall, just kind of that global fatigue, we're going to change our strategies a bit. Um, and then also our pelvic floor is going to have a tolerance where if it gets fatigued, then we can become symptomatic as well. So do we need to consider um, load management, volume management? Do we need to consider energy balance? Has that person been eating well throughout that day, as an example? Um, and then the C comes down to capacity. And capacity is kind of uh, throwing it back to some of those exercise science principles. Um, so um, progressive overload and the said principle, which is specific adaptation to impose demands. Um, so we can optimize tips as much as we can. We can make sure that that person is not in a relatively fatigued state for what we we're asking their body to do. But at the end of the day, there is likely going to be a point where we need to build capacity. Um, we need to push out their tolerance, um, push out the ability of their system. So whether that's pelvic floor muscle strength um, or responsiveness um, or whatever it is, we need to just drive that adaptation um, by challenging it in um, a progressive manner. Um, and the specificity, meaning that um, if I do, you know, just pelvic floor exercises and my patient's issue is with running, is that going to give me as much benefit as if I also incorporate the specific demand of running? And obviously there's going, you know, this is going to be a case-by-case -case basis, but I really think that there's benefit in incorporating um, whatever the person wants to do. Well, what does that look like that we can get them to do? And then we increase it from there. So it could be that they're going to start with 30 seconds of running and then a minute of walking and just build up intervals like that. Um, but we do want to, you know, push things out um, to drive adaptation um, so that they get better over time. And that's a, the longer term. So that's tips FC. That is huge. That is awesome. I can imagine people right now just, if you are frantically writing, don't worry. Cause if you can see my, um, picture moving up and down that's because I've been typing it all at the same time so we'll have the acronym and some explanations in the show notes so don't panic and of course you can go back and listen to Teresa again um, thank you for that overview I think that's really helpful and as you were going through each of those things I was kind of like internally nodding going oh yeah that's really good yep 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 um, and I think it's really nice to map it out though because some of this stuff we do a lot of it we we just naturally do but especially in those cases where you get a bit stuck and you think, mm -hmm. okay, I, I obviously haven't got this right. I'm missing something to have something to go through almost like a, almost like a little internal checklist to kind of go, have I thought about this or have I thought about that? And maybe this is more of a capacity issue. 
or this is more of a fatigue issue and I'm, I'm working on breathing, but maybe that's not actually where I need to be going. So I think that's really, really nice to have it mapped out like that, Teresa. So thank you. Um, I would love it because we've, I was just thinking off the top of my head, how can we make this really applicable for our audience? Um, and obviously giving examples would be really useful. And maybe we can have one sort of more for the public health community, but for our fitness professionals, because we have a lot of um, fitness professionals who, who do like to listen. Um, what about, would you mind just going through an example maybe of someone who would come to um, see a fitness professional who has, um, let's just say some mild back pain and they've seen their physiotherapist um, Let's just clear all the red flags. It's all been done. They've seen a health professional, but they've come to see um, a health professional. They just want to get, uh, sorry, fitness professional. And, um, and they want to get back to, um, let's say CrossFit. Mm -hmm. How would you, how would a fitness professional go through this process? Yeah. Awesome. So one of the things that I first want to just throw out there is that sometimes when we first look at tips, it can look overwhelming. And the intent is not for you to like start at T and then go all the way down through looking at all the different things that you can change. I mean, you certainly could do that, but that's probably going to be very frustrating for both you and the person that you're working with um, and typically isn't necessary. Um, so, you know, the acronym is there. It's all laid out for you to give you all the range of possibilities that you could look at, but that doesn't mean that you have to look at all of them. Uh, so I just want to make sure that that's clear. Um, and then the other question that we'll often get is, well, where do you start, right? Um, and the two things that I look at um, in terms of where do I start to apply tips is number one, where is the biggest deviation um, from what I expect to see? Um, so if I see someone um, running as an example or doing a particular CrossFit movement, what is the thing, the big rock, the thing that really kind of jumps out to me that that looks the, like, you know, the, the biggest deviation from what I expect to see? The other thing, the second thing that I will look at is what is the thing that they don't like to do? So where do they lack variability? So if you see that they always do things a certain way, so they're always having, say, their, their shoulders braced back, um, they never let their back bend, um, those sort of things, then that would be the other kind of clue to hopefully kind of you know, speed up the process. Um, so those would be the two places that I, that I would say start with. Um, and then if you've kind of cleaned up that stuff or you've played and experimented with that and then you're still looking at, at things, that's when you can start to look at all the other um, options uh, of things that you can potentially change with your patient uh, or a client. Um, and how do you know if it's working? You're going to test, retest. Um, so you don't want to just be like, oh, well, let's just do this change. Let's just change your tension. And then, well, I think that should work and then go away with it. It's right now, did that make a difference? And we only keep the stuff that makes a difference, um, a positive difference. Um, so say I have someone and I, you know, see that they're holding their breath on a movement that they're symptomatic with. And then we decide, okay, we want to play around with breath stuff. Um, I, maybe I'm going to say, okay, well, rather than holding your breath, let's exhale on exertion. What if that makes their symptoms worse? Then what do I do? What if it doesn't change their symptoms? Do I still keep it? No. Okay, so I only take them away from their automatic tendency is if it's beneficial to what we're after. So I need to see either a, a performance improvement 
or a positive improvement in their symptoms. Um, and usually it should be a pretty big one. If they're, you know, if they're kind of like, eh, maybe it's better, it's not better. Not enough better that I care about anyways, if that makes sense. Um, so for your example, so we have someone who's coming in to see a fitness professional um, and they are complaining of some mild low back pain and they're wanting to get back to um, CrossFit. Is there a particular movement that is uh, pain provocative for this individual? So let's go with the deadlift. Perfect. Um, so at what point in the deadlift are they experiencing their pain? Uh, pulling off the ground. Okay, perfect. So we have someone who has some mild back pain in their initial pull with the deadlift. So what are the things that we can look at? Now, we don't have this person in front of us. Um, so we, you know, it's hard for us to know what is this person, um, what's the biggest deviation. Um, so we're going to have to just improvise here. Um, so let's say that this person is having some uh, back pain and what they're doing is they're setting up um, and everything is being braced. So they are just ripping the crap out of that bar. They're trying to break it. Um, we have a super high tension strategy. So that's our T, right? That's our tension. So what we could do is we could cue them. Well, what happens if we take that tension and we have it and then we have it again? Um, and just see what happens when they do that. Does that make any difference to their symptoms um, or does it not? Um, if that didn't work and we wanted to do a pressure thing, then maybe we could, um, again, we'll make the assumption that they're holding their breath. What happens if they inhale as they try and do a pull? What happens if they exhale as they try and do the pull? What happens if they do a breath hold, but um, they're gonna hold their breath on a lower volume of air? So rather than taking a big breath and then um, holding that valsalva on that big breath, maybe we're going to let them breathe out about halfway and then do a breath hold on that remaining volume of air in their lungs. Um, if we go down to the next B, posture and position, we can take a look at their setup. Um, maybe we want to change um, their positioning. So maybe what they're doing is they're setting up and they have their bum really high. And maybe we want to get them to drop their hips down. Maybe what we're seeing is that they're getting some lumbar flexion as they do that initial pull. So we're going to see if they can do that without allowing that lumbar flexion to occur. Um, we may need to move on to scaling options. So do we need to take some of that load off the bar? Um, do we need to potentially reduce the range of motion? So maybe lifting that bar up onto plates. Um, lots of different things that we could, we could discuss and do with that. And then when it comes to the sensitivity stuff, maybe we need to be talking to them about some of um, their beliefs about deadlifting. Is this something that they're fearful of? Um, and kind of just figuring out what their story is as to why they are having pain with their deadlifts. I had lots of patients uh, in my day come to see me for pain with deadlifting. And I'll often hear a story of, um, you know, deadlifts have always been a problem for me, or, oh, I don't deadlift because deadlifting hurts my back, or I hurt my back in the past deadlifting, and so now I never do it, or now I'm scared of doing it. And so we can start to see that there could be some sensitivity factors depending upon the individual. Another person may not have any of that, but those are things that we want to chat with our, 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 uh, our client about. Um, and that could be that maybe we are going to break that down um, so 
so that we start to have uh, that client do something like um, a kettlebell um, Romanian deadlift, right? Something super light, something where we're just getting a little bit of that hip hinge uh, going, see how that goes. If that goes good, then we're gonna build from there. Um, and then maybe we're going to do a Romanian deadlift with a barbell. And if that goes good, then maybe we're gonna add a bit of load. And then if that goes good, then maybe we're gonna increase that range of motion down to a full deadlift. Um, maybe we're going to look at changing um, them from a conventional stance to a bit of a sumo stance. Um, lots and lots of different things that we can play with, depending upon the individual, what's gonna work? You have to test, retest. I love that answer. And I think for so many people, you can just see how many options you have available as a trainer, right? Like it's not one thing that you can change. It's a hundred different things that you can change. And um, yeah, that, that was a fantastic answer. So thank you for that, Teresa. And also I think it will help people just in their minds to go through that process of, of the tips and how it applies. I know Anthony's got a question, so I'm going to, I'm going to throw it over to him. Yeah. Well, I had a comment first, like, Love hearing you talk, Teresa. Love confirming my biases, um, of course. But um, what I really enjoy about this is the structure and it's just a mental checklist we can go through. And if we've been doing it for a while, we tend to get caught up in our preferred patterns, right? We tend to see the things mm -hmm. that we like to see. We tend to uh, do the changes that have helped lots of people in the past and and so, you know, by having this framework, we can go, hold on a second, what are my preferences? And, yes. oh, you know, I don't think about irritability because I just don't think about irritability that way and thinking about the coffee and their bladder. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, you know, being able to have that framework, not only to remember what we could try, but to also see where our preferences are and go, well, you know, I usually would do this. Maybe I should start by doing this so that we get used to that idea of, you know, maximizing variability, even in the way that mm -hmm. we work. So, um, you know, it's fantastic with, um, with those clients and, and fitness professionals can do so much to help people. And they see, you know, we all agree that they see people way more than we do. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things, uh, oh, just before I forget, so if you're watching on Facebook at the moment, or even if you're watching on delay, drop your comments in, Teresa will answer any questions that you might have, so drop a question. If you like what she's saying, hit that like button, uh, share this with people. Uh, we always wanna bring you the best information from around the world. Um, so thank you very much, Teresa, for sharing all of that knowledge. And we are not winding up. I'm just getting to the next question, which is running. Like, right. I know you love running, right? And so can we, can you give us an example of a client where you had to go through this kind of test, retest, figure out some unusual changes that you had to make, not the standard typical. So during the deadlift, for example, I was thinking, um, yeah, a common thing we see is definitely people who start with a straight back that flex, but we've also had the people that keep a straight back and lift and they have the pain and, and we actually teach them to flex, um, yes. you know, like a Jefferson curl or something like that. And that's the thing that allows them to deadlift, but that breaks all the rules, right. you know, what's some of the stuff are, for running, right? For, yes. For those that are listening, I'm just grinning away over here. 
um, because um, you're just reading my mind. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up is when we go through tips, it's really important for us to check our biases because it's not enough to say we're looking at pressure as an example. And we're like, okay, I'm looking at pressure, I'm looking at how they're breathing, and I am going to only allow them options within what I am okay with. Meaning that, okay, well, I tried uh, exhalation on exertion, and that didn't work. So pressure isn't it. Let's move on to the next one. Hold on. We need to try all the different options, right? Um, so yes, we do all have biases and we all have had things that we've seen or things that we've learned that are ingrained that we may not even be aware of and we need to check those biases. And the fun part of doing tips is when you start to see patients breaking the rules. And that's where you start to see, okay, maybe things aren't exactly how you learn that they should be. Um, you know, and there's so many different ways that we could, many different examples that we could uh, talk about to illustrate that, but challenge your biases. So when it comes to tips, don't just think about what can I do within those different categories to move the person closer to my, expect, my expectation of what I want it to, to be, but also how could I move them away from um, my expectation, away from my bias and my preference of how I want them to do it, and see what happens with that as well. So thank you so much, Anne, for bringing that up. Um, to get back to the running example, um, can you, uh, you wanted me to give an example or can I just talk about running um, just generally? Uh, something specific, like just maybe, oh, with this one runner who had incontinence, um, you know, these were some of the tips, things that I tried with her and these things didn't actually change much, but these things did, but that was for her because then on another case, very similar presentation, I had to do these things. Like, you know, can you give us some specific examples to illustrate yeah. how it looks in practice, please? Sure, so how it looks in practice. So one of the things that I do with runners is I obviously watch them run. You cannot do this if you are not watching people move. You need to be actually watching them move and you need to be playing with this stuff in the real time. So what I'll do is I will get my uh, runner to run for me. And one of the things that I'm looking at is their cadence. Um, so just uh, some real practical information you can download for free onto your phone, whatever type of phone you have, a tempo app. So I use a, um, an app called Tempo Tap, and basically every time I hear a footfall, I just tap on my phone, um, and it gives me the real-time feedback of what their cadence is, which is the number of steps that they're taking per minute. Um, so that's an easy thing that I can do. I'm also looking at how much vertical excursion, so how much they're leaping up into the air. I'm using my very, very sophisticated tool to um, measure their impact, which is my ear. Um, so I'm listening to those footfalls. Are they really heavy or are they soft? I'm looking at their position. So are they kind of having that nice forward lean from the ankles? Are they really braced back? Do they have their shoulders down and back? Um, do they have a rotation through their thoracic spine? Um, or is everything kind of locked down there? Um, uh, there are things that I might ask them about that I can't see. So I might ask them, um, what's happening with your pelvic floor when you're running? Are you paying any attention at all to it? Or if you are paying attention to it, what are you uh, paying attention to? Are you trying to do anything with your pelvic floor? 
Um, and then I'm reliant upon them to tell me, yeah, I'm not thinking about my pelvic floor when I'm running, which is totally fine if that's the case. Or I might have someone that comes and says, yeah, I'm thinking about squeezing my pelvic floor the whole time that I'm running because I'm scared that if I don't, then I'm going to leak. Or maybe I'm scared that if I don't, then I'm not going to be supporting my prolapses. And I feel like I need to do that when I'm running. Um, I might also just be looking at their breathing. Um, so depending upon the person um, on a treadmill, that's easier for me to see if they're kind of far away and I'm getting them to run um, just around in the gym um, or you know, down a path or something, that's obviously harder to observe, but I can be observing um, their breathing pattern. Are they breathing really kind of apically just up uh, into their chest or am I seeing some nice um, excursion with their breaths? So those are all things that I'm looking at and I'm sure I'm missing a lot. Um, I will kind of look a little bit at um, foot strike pattern and where they're landing in regards to their, um, uh, their center of gravity. So are they really overstriding with their foot landing really far in front of them or are they landing a little bit more um, underneath themselves? But really a lot of that stuff is all kind of the same. So typically if someone has a low cadence, we tend to see that also being correlated with um, a larger vertical excursion. Um, they're taking less steps, so they go up higher with each step. Um, we tend to see that there's a higher likelihood that they're overstriding, so landing in front of their center of gravity a lot more. Um, and we tend to see a little bit higher likelihood that they are um, heel striking uh, with that lower cadence as well. Um, so with that, um, I can change any number of those things. Um, so what I will often do is I will change cadence just because it's the easiest thing. Um, we want things that are automatic for someone. So if I tell someone to try and do something with their body um, in terms of how they're moving, when you think about running, typically what we're seeing for cadence is anywhere between 150 um, and 190, I've even had people up to 205 steps per minute. Can we ask someone to change what they're doing in terms of where their foot is falling or what they're doing that quickly? Probably not. That's gonna be very difficult for them to try and modulate it when they're doing that that many times per minute. Um, so um, cadence is a really nice one because um, what I can do is I can put a metronome on um, and I can say I have someone who comes in and they're, you know, 150, I can throw my metronome on to 165 and just ask them to match the beat. And then we can see what is the effect of that. And that's something that they can easily take away and do that if that's something that's helpful for them um, as part of their, their training. Um, so to give you an example, um, I had someone who came in that was having some stress or an incontinence with running. Um, and she was having it fairly early on. Um, she wanted to get back to running, um, but this was something that was a bit of a limiting factor for her in terms of her comfort uh, for returning to run. Um, and when we looked at her running, she had um, uh, a lower cadence, so she was in kind of the 150, 155 range. Um, heel striking was really locked down in through here. Um, sorry, if you can't see me, I mean through her thorax. Um, uh, excuse me. Sorry, I have to get a drink. Ah, that's better. Um, and so what we did with her, first of all, was we changed her cadence. 
um, immediately she noted a different noted a difference with that. Um, so that was great, but she was still having a little bit of symptoms. So rather than just leave it there, I'm greedy. I want to see if I can get more. Um, so we said, well, okay, your cadence is higher. We're with that. Her vertical excursion was decreased. Um, but she was still having a little bit more impact. Um, and I wanted to see if we could potentially change that. So I cued her um, soft footfall. So I said, I want you to imagine when you're running that you're like a ninja. So you need to run up behind someone and you need to be so quiet that you don't spook them. You don't let them know that you're coming up behind them. Um, and uh, that did the trick for her. So the increased cadence and then the soft footfalls, um, she did good. Now that did not mean that she did not have any leaking with running. Um, so what that did was that increased the time interval um, that she could run without leaking. And then what we did was we worked within that. Um, so we built capacity. Um, so we had her do intervals and over time she built her capacity such that eventually she could get back to running the amount that she wanted to run without any leaking and she did really well with that. Um, I've had other people that with running, we have needed to work on a little bit more thoracic rotation stuff. So for that particular individual, that wasn't as much of an issue, but for others, it certainly is. Um, and, you know, one thing to, to keep in mind is that when you have a runner that comes to see you and they are having issues with say um, jogging and they are jogging with a jogging stroller, make sure that they bring that with them if they can. Um, because you cannot assess them. Well, I mean, you can assess them without the jogging stroller, but that doesn't mean that that is going to equate to jogging with a jogging stroller. Um, because as soon as you're holding onto the stroller, thing, tension changes, strategy changes. Um, it's not the same thing anymore. Um, so get them to bring in their jogging stroller um, if they can. If they don't want to bring their baby with them to their appointment, that's totally fine. Um, they can throw like a medicine ball in there or, you know, something else that has a little bit of uh, the same amount of weight to simulate that. Uh, but you want to make sure that you're trying to assess um, what they're having their issues with. What a fabulously comprehensive answer. Thank you. Do you use Huddle or any other technology, Teresa, to video your clients running? Because I find... Um, Personally, it's like I'm trying to, if I'm doing it in real time, just looking at my clients, I find it quite hard. I like, I love using the videos and then slowing it down. Um, Cause I, yeah, I feel like my brain can't. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a lot of different apps out there. So Huddle is one. I use Coach's Eye. Um, and the thing that I really love about um, Coach's Eye is not only can you slow it down so that it's easier for you to see, but you can also show it to your, your patient or your client that you're working with. Um, so, and it's funny, like I've had people before where, um, cause I've done running analysis for several years. Like I've done many, many uh, running analysis over the years uh, for MSK stuff and now pelvic health. Um, but um, you know, I, in the past I've had people that came in and they would tell me they're like, Oh, um, I'm a midfoot striker. Or I'm, you know, like they have this, this concept in their brain of what their running looks like and what their running is. Um, and it's really weird. Not everyone is like that, um, but there certainly have been cases where it's been 
awesome <laughs> to be able to have a video to then play back from them and then just kind of scratch their head and be like, oh, I didn't realize <laughs> that that's how I moved. Um, but, uh, and then to also show them the side by side where they can see the changes um, is kind of neat as well. Do you need it? No, I don't think you need it. Um, but it's kind of a nice thing and people seem to enjoy it um, to be able to see. Um, but yeah. I, I definitely think all that musk um, background is really, really helpful. Uh, musk and sports for things like this. And um, just thinking about the, because all the, all the, so much of the research in terms of, um, you know, ground reaction forces and running and things like that, it's all from the musk side of things, but it makes so much sense just to apply it to public health because whatever the joint reaction forces, um, whenever they're zooming up, it's probably having the same effect on the pelvic floor um, and the internal organs basically dropping down on those pelvic floor muscles. So it makes sense to apply, you know, apply the principles across. It just, it's, and a lot of it, as you say, is quite easy to do. And I do like hitting the, hitting the cadence first as well. Um, it was funny, it's just talking, uh, thinking back on some of the things that you said. And one of the things you were talking about was uh, in the last section when Anthony was talking about, um, messing around with things and, and not going for the stereotypical ideal way. Um, I had a client last weekend who, week who has had, who's had really chronic back pain for a couple of years and she's had a baby nine months ago. She's really struggling to lift her baby up off the floor um, and messing around with all of that. And we ended up finding out that she could lift with no pain. If she went for this ridiculous stance, which was really wide, she had a left foot forward, she flexed her lumbar spine and then I think she breathed out as she got it up. But if she did it that way, all her pain was, was gone. And then I spoke to her on telehealth yesterday and I said, how's your back been? And she said, oh, oh yeah, it's fine. I don't need to do it that way anymore. I can now, I'm now going for my, my feet just kind of go side by side. They're still a bit wider. Um, but now she, she's playing around with it herself and trying different ways. And she's actually got more variability, but she doesn't have that pain anymore. Um, and just finding one way in and it was, it looked stupid, like it looked wrong, but it worked. <laughs> and that's such an important point is that you gave her permission to play around. Um, so I like to teach my patients tips and I like to make sure that they understand and they know that they can play with these different variables as well. Um, so that they have that permission. And the other thing that I love about that story that you just told us was, um, you know, that you made sure that you followed up with her and um, made sure that she reintroduced that variability. Because sometimes even though we don't speak it and we don't think that that's our message that's getting across, patients can still sometimes internalize that idea of, oh, this is the right way now and this is how I should do it. Um, and it doesn't have to be like that, right? Um, so we want to make sure that we're conveying to them that if we're, if we're saying, okay, let's do it this way, that it's let's do it this way for now and not forever. And also trying to build out that movement vocabulary, that movement fluency as much as we can, as soon as we can. Yeah. Uh, we love all the ways, don't we? We love all yeah. the ways. Um, it's been, it's been fantastic. We've been talking about um, so many different things. Uh, the structure, so tension, impact, irritability, I'm testing myself, right? Posture and position, <laughs> pressure, strategy, sensitivity. And once, once we've covered all of those, um, think about fatigue and capacity. 
Um, and I like the way that you say that. Uh, I, I've heard you speak about this before, so maybe you didn't say it today, but you tend to say, do the tips first and then think about fatigue and capacity because sometimes it's so easy for us to say, you're just weak, you have to do your pelvic floor muscles and not try any of the things. Um, and you know, that's, that's a really sad trap. Um, or sometimes it's like, oh, you're too tired, now you stop and now you can't do anything. And it's like, oh, but, but you could have tried all these other things too. Um, so I really do like uh, how you say, you know, let's just go get those big rocks, let's look at those big deviations. Um, and, you know, you gave us your general principles, some of the general principles in your running, as well as some specific examples um, of how it looked in different people. And we were talking about um, uh, the impact side of things and stress urinary incontinence more. Um, and you've alluded uh, to the pelvic organ prolapse side of things and the sensitivity. And, you know, all three of us uh, agree that, you know, the sensitivity side of things is often the pelvic organ prolapse symptoms, not necessarily the physical um, deviation in the vaginal mm -hmm. wall. Um, I, we, we, uh, I, we could listen to you all day, of course, like all of our guests. Um, we're trying to, we're trying to stick to time better. Um, is there anything in particular that, um, that you want people to know? What, are, what is like, if I could just reach health and fitness professionals, trainers, coaches, physios, osteos, chiros, um, if I could just get them to just think about these things, like what is that wisdom that you want people to walk away from today? Oh, there's so much. Um, I think that first and foremost, no matter what we do, we always should be approaching every interaction with our clients with an honoring of their autonomy. Um, so I don't get to say what your goals are. You need to tell me what your goals are, and then we're going to see what is the best way that together we can work through to get you there. Um, we have to be really, really careful with our language. Um, we have to make sure that we're empowering people and that we're not taking things off the table and restricting people unnecessarily. Um, we have to make sure that we are not underloading um, our clients. Um, so let them do the things that they can do and help them to get better and to progress. Um, there's, you know, it's harmful to hold people back and to tether them with our fears. Um, you know, I think of so many different cases where that has happened to people. Um, and it has held them back, unfortunately, for a very long time. Um, and if we can stop that from happening in the first place, um, that would be fantastic. I was just thinking on that though, Teresa, now that you have the pelvic health skills, does that make it much easier to actually be able to check them in the clinic and say, look, do that movement. I can actually have a look and see whether or not that's actually changed things and then give them that confidence to say, hey, look, you're doing great. Nothing's changed. It's not worse. Um, I can visibly check that. And um, does that make it easier? It does, but I don't think that it's necessary, if that makes sense. And I think that we also have to be very, very careful as pelvic PTs in the interpretation of that knowledge. 
Um, so as an example, um, and this is maybe opening a bit of a can of worms, um, say I have someone who comes to see me and we do an initial check and we do their GH plus BB and we check their pelvic floor muscle strength and we check where they're at in terms of their grade. And then they're going about and doing their activities and then I ask them to come back and see me later on and we're going to do a recheck. And potentially I see a little bit more descent that time. How I interpret that is very, very tricky. Because as you know, and as anyone that's listening knows as a pelvic PT, there are so many different things that can contribute to that. So yes, we know that symptoms are not correlating with structural change, but what I'm gonna challenge you with is how much of a mild structural change can we necessarily say is relevant and important and significant? Do you know what I mean? So if I have someone who comes in and they are, their pelvic floor is more fatigued that day, or maybe they give me a better bear down, or maybe their pelvic floor uh, tendency to grip when they bear down is less now than it was when I tested them previously. There are so many different variables that can change what I see in my assessment. So I do think that there is a 100% value in that's rechecking and monitoring and those sorts of things, but I also wanna throw a little bit of caution into there and just to be aware of that, because what I worry about is someone going to, you know, they see their pelvic PT and they recheck them and maybe there's a little bit of a difference, but what does that mean? What are we then saying to our patients? Are we saying, oh, well, now you have, like it looks like you have a little bit more descent. So what? It's the end of the day. My last assessment was at the, right? at the start of the day. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. And one of the things that I love and why I keep asking you to, uh, to assist on the course is because you think about things and you think deeply about things and you challenge me. You're not scared to go, hey, aunt, because Teresa calls me aunt. I call her T. She goes, hey, aunt, is that a story that you're telling yourself? Do we really need to be doing this? And, you know, I love that you feel free to do that and you do it on the courses and I love it. Like I'm, I ask for it. You know, I ask for it. I ask for it from everyone, but people seem to be scared. I don't know why, but you aren't, which is great, which leads me, sorry for all that rambling, which leads me to the question just before we finish, if it can be done briefly, we had a discussion recently about whether everybody should have an internal check of their pelvic floor before doing exercise. Can you tell us your thought processes and thinking around this question, please? Right. Do you mean everyone in the entire world, Anthony? Or are you talking about people with symptoms or oh. after having a baby? What's your... Yes. 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 Right. <laughs> well, all of the above? Um... Well, Teresa will probably explain the context. Yeah. <clears throat> so just to give a little bit of context and background, um, we often as pelvic PTs um, will hear the message that every woman should have a pelvic health check. Um, you know, some of the pros for this is for women to be empowered with knowledge, for them to have some awareness of their pelvic floor, um, for their, them to um, gather information, basically. Um, the problem is, and um, just to be clear, um, I very much was on board with that um, for a little while. 
um, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, every woman should, you know, get a pelvic health check and we should know where they're at. Um, but there's a few issues with that. Um, one is that again, what do we need to do first and foremost? We always have to honor the individual's autonomy. So I am not allowed to say that um, you, Marika, that you should get a pelvic health check. That is for you to decide. And I might uh, want to share with you some of the reasons why you may or may not want to get one. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, that is going to be your decision as to whether or not you want that information. Um, now, and again, this comes back to what we were just talking about, and that is the interpretation. Um, so we know um, that pelvic organ prolapse is something that is very common. Um, what is also common, and what I'll kind of relate this back to, is um, you know everyone's pretty familiar with um, the prevalence of changes within the lumbar spine as we age. Um, and we know that a lot of those changes are asymptomatic in a lot of people. Um, so, you know, we take an MRI of their back, we'll see things like disc herniations, we'll see degenerative changes, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that anything is wrong and that person can be, you know, high functioning, um, no pain, everything's great. Um, we see other areas of our body change as we get older too. Um, so we see that our face, uh, we get wrinkles and things start to sag and, um, you know, women, our breasts, our breasts change with pregnancy and uh, with nursing or pumping. Um, all of those things change how our breasts look as well. Um, we probably have some stretching of the suspensory ligaments of the breasts, um, you know, and the breasts sit differently. Um, but again, you know, we're not saying that that's dysfunctional. Yes, it looks different. And yes, there is surgery to repair that and put those um, breasts back where they used to be, um, but is that necessarily a problem? Um, now I say this with full understanding and full empathy for all the many, many individuals that are dealing with uh, pelvic organ prolapse and it is a problem for them and they are having symptoms. And I am not saying that that is the same thing as having wrinkles on your face or um, having saggy boobs, um, but what I'm just trying to um, think about is how much of pelvic organ prolapse are we seeing in those asymptomatic cases? I'm not talking about the symptomatic ones. But, but Teresa, technically you can't diagnose it as pelvic organ prolapse if it's asymptomatic anyway. So like Anthony and I were having this conversation, according to the guidelines, if there's movement but there's no symptoms, it's not technically pelvic organ prolapse. Okay, that may be a difference in training. Um, because I know from my training, we are looking at the physical descent of the pelvic organ structures. So we're looking at the, and I shouldn't say that, we're looking at the descent of the anterior wall. We're looking at the descent of the uterus. We're looking at the descent of the posterior wall in relation to um, uh, the vaginal opening. Um, so if I have someone who comes and they have, you know, quite a bit of descent of the anterior wall, um, that would, even if they're asymptomatic, we would say that they have asymptomatic anterior wall descent. Is that different where okay, you are? We, we would, well, the, um, the ICS guidelines for pelvic organ prolapse say you must have symptoms that correlate with hmm. the, the, um, the movement of the wall. So if it's anterior wall, you should have symptoms that correlate with that in order to be able to give them a diagnosis of prolapse. Like you can't, 
we as pelvic health physios shouldn't be saying to people anyway, if there's movement of the anterior wall and there's no symptoms, we shouldn't be diagnosing that as prolapse. And I would agree with that. Um, but that's not happening. Right? Um, so we have someone who comes in for, you know, a postpartum check as an example, um, or maybe they are quite a number of years down the road um, from having kids and, you know, maybe their PT says, oh, hey, you should get your pelvic floor checked because I notice you're doing CrossFit. Um, and they go and see that pelvic PT and they have some dissent. How do we interpret that? And if 50% of nullips have some degree of stage one or two pelvic organ prolapse, what is normal? <laughs> hey, I'm, I am completely, I'm completely on the same wavelength with you with this. And I, I agree. And we see it all the time clinically. And I would implore public health physios then to read the ICS guidelines because internationally we shouldn't be diagnosing it if the guidelines are saying that there should be correlating, uh, corresponding symptoms um, that correlate with the objective findings in order to be able to do that. So I, I look, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with me. I agree with you. And it's sad to hear that that is um, happening because you will find that in a lot of people. So if we have someone coming and we are saying, okay, well, we're not going to diagnose them as that, then what are, why are they coming and why are they, why are we doing that? I think it's probably more the concern is probably postnatal checks because someone's just coming for a clearance for exercise, for example. So if someone's coming in with symptoms, that's a different situation, right? Totally. Um, and I would still be incredibly careful about language. Um, might say things more like, oh, there's a bit of movement here, um, rather than, you know, like just being careful not to use catastrophic language, like things are bulging and falling out. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure we all are very considerate about things like that, but it's probably, why are people coming to see you? Sometimes for a lot of us, because they've been encouraged to have a postnatal check, um, it's those women who are not having symptoms or maybe they've got some stress urinary incontinence um, and maybe less of the bulging lump type things. I mean, I guess we just have to put it all together in a picture and think about what we're saying and how, whether or not that's helpful or detrimental to their outcomes. And also when considering what exercises we're going to give to them, um, I'm with you. Like, you know, do we want to, do we want to be holding people back because there's some anterior wall movement that might've been there their entire lives. So certainly there are situations where we want this to be done, but um, the question was um, the idea that every woman, sh every woman, uh, whether they have symptoms or not, and particularly in this case, we're talking about the asymptomatic ones, should they have a pelvic health check? Um, and I challenge that. You know, if, they, if they're asymptomatic and they want to, 100%, you go for it. That can be empowering, that can be valuable, that can give you some really great information. You can learn some strategies. You can learn how to do a pelvic floor contraction. That can be something where you, you know, strengthen that muscle, just like I would be doing some bicep curls if I wanted to get stronger biceps. Um, so there's so much value in that. And I really hope that no one gets uh, the wrong idea that I'm not saying that uh, that shouldn't be um, something that's accessible for women and something that holds immense value. It does. But for us to say that every woman should have it, 
I don't think that we should necessarily be saying that um, because there are a lot of cases uh, of women who maybe have some asymptomatic descent. And when they're in that position that they've come into the, the clinic and they said, I want you to screen me for pelvic organ prolapse and they have no symptoms, um, how they take, and I can package that in the best way with the best language and tell them how common it is, um, but that can still potentially carry weight. Um, that could, you know, maybe not be the best for them. And it's kind of like the same idea when you have someone who goes and has an MRI of their back. And when they do find out that they have something like a discrimination, even though they don't have any symptoms and then that's not causing any issues for them, they now all of a sudden have something that they weren't aware of previously and that can affect behavior. Um, that, you know, we see this, those studies um, with respect to the lumbar spine uh, imaging findings. Hard to unsee it and it's hard to unhear it, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. And we are not, like, we can't control what happens with that, right? Um, and so my question is, um, could the same thing be happening there where we are very well-intentioned in terms of sharing information with patients who want to know it and ethically if they want to know it's i don't get to decide whether i disclose that or not that's their information i can control how i package that and the language that i use and the education that encompasses that um, but if they are coming to see me and they want to know do i have any anterior wall descent and if so, to what extent, and they are specifically asking me that, I need to tell them. Um, you know, but the interpretation of that and what they do with that later and how that potentially affects them moving forward um, makes me just pause and say, hold on, when I hear the words that every woman should have a pelvic floor assessment. Um, and I would add a couple of more caveats to that is that, you know, we have with the higher rates of, um, uh, sexual abuse and trauma and, um, you know, ad adverse childhood events. Uh, mm -hmm. There are so many, there are so many times when it's just completely inappropriate as well. Um, and I did actually, I got into a, well, I'm not going to say a big argument, but a little bit of a minor argument in a, a Facebook group once. Sure, we can call it a discussion because uh, there was a, um, a fitness professional who refuses to let women come to postnatal exercise classes if they don't go and see a pelvic health PT as a screening thing. And I encouraged this person, I said, please don't stop women from exercising and being a part of a group and getting all the benefits associated with that because they haven't done as you have told them to. Um, so you've, t you've spoken a lot, Teresa, about autonomy. Yeah. And I think that is so key. And um, part of that autonomy is actually giving women the right to not do what you want them to do and to have control over their body and their rehabilitation process. So I would implore people to not have these procedures in place unless it's, you know, dangerous for the client. Don't tell them you need to do this or I will not let you come and see me or come to my exercise classes. Um, sorry, I just wanted to add that. Yep. That's so valid. Yeah. And you know, I, for such a long time too, uh, people were just grinning and bearing it and not talking about it. And the, the level of awareness of what a pelvic physio, what a pelvic PT could do um, was really, really quite low. Oh, there's a specialty 
for the pelvic floor for the for the pelvis so you know i think it was really important to raise that awareness but as as you mentioned you know the the languaging um the the packaging of the health message which is hey this is an option and there is help available and look these are the statistics and if you're somebody who is one of the one in three women one in two women maybe who leak during exercise and this bothers you then there are solutions um you know did you know that uh pelvic organ prolapse might might not be a thing that they know about but how many times have people turned up asymptomatic and then somebody says oh you've your shoulder is also depressed on this side because of your scoliosis um, and then they start developing pain and symptoms where they didn't actually have a history of it at all. Like we've just given them pain and symptoms. Um, and you know, I've, I've heard of people, I went to my postnatal check, um, and, and they told me that I've got a prolapse and then mm -hmm. I started feeling heaviness. It's like, yeah, what came first? Because yep. do you know what I mean? So I think all of those. Can things... I say I'm sure we have all historically contributed to some of these problems, and I oh, yeah. retrospectively look back and think, "Oh shit, I yep. probably caused a whole lot of harm here." I keep apologising for all the harm that I've caused yep. in the past, well-meaning, well-intentioned, um, but yeah, I just wanted to say that you know I love how you think about those sorts of things. So thank you. Thanks. All right, so I get the job of wrapping up this time. Hey, Anthony. So, um, Teresa, I've been typing like a crazy person, trying to keep notes through your um, your talk, uh, which I say talk through our interview, and it's been so good. And I love how you've just distilled all this information into this acronym. Um, and I think a lot of people will find it so useful. So you went through um, your tips FC. So just as a quick revision. The T is tension. So we're talking about getting this optimal tension to task. We, and it could be at a global level, it could be locally. You talked about impact and whether that impact could be with your own body. It might be with equipment such as hitting a bat to a ball or um, popping that barbell onto your shoulders. Um, you talked about the, uh, the second eye, which is irritability. And that might be some of those other factors, which um, quite frankly, we don't always think about when it comes to exercise, like um, the bladder irritants or the gastrointestinal irritability and how they might impact on things like stress urinary incontinence or fecal incontinence. Um, and you also talked about symptom irritability. So um, good old calm shit down, build shit back up again from Greg Lehman. Um, and then we moved on to the two P's. So the first one is posture and positions. And you talked about the static postures and the more dynamic postures, uh, but really trying to reiterate that there's not this, good posture and bad posture um what do they say the next the best posture is your next posture something like that anyway i'm trying to throw it throw in all the little little catchy sayings um but just being careful that if you take something off the table you've got to put something in so don't just be thinking always remove remove um add something back in if you take something away we moved on to the second p which is pressure and that's um intra-abdominal pressure which is modified by how we breathe and um, the volume of breath, the breath hold um, and how you're basically modulating all of that through the canister. And that might be the externally through muscle contraction or whacking a belt on, or you gave that great example of um, having uh, carrying the baby as well. 
um, which definitely has an impact on the canister. Then we moved on to the two S's, which are strategy. So how the person is doing it, what their technique is, um, and how you can change that through changing load, through scaling, um, but really trying to preserve the overall intention, but just being aware that the technique might look different to you know, what we would expect for that particular movement. Um, and then the second S, which is sensitivity. And you talked about pain science and um, really studying about the the idea of pain and it has and the idea that it has come from this this response to either a real or a perceived threat so it might be real tissue damage but in many cases it can be um, as a response to previous experiences as well so we're really looking at some of the beliefs and attitudes are, and the stories around their pain experience and what the meaning they have attributing attributing to that um, and a lot of that with our clients could be things like stress and fatigue and whether they've had enough sleep. Um, and you gave some great examples of just with distraction, like using music in the gym, but giving them something else to focus on. So they're not internally focusing on their symptoms or on their pain. Um, and then you moved on to the F and the C, which were fatigue and um, capacity and really looking at some of those exercise science principles. And then following all that awesomeness, um, you gave a couple of really good examples for the fitness professionals and um, health professionals. So the first one you talked about was deadlifting with low back pain. And the second one was really looking at the runners and all the different things that you can look at and, and potentially adapt in order to try and minimize, um, reduce the symptoms and encouraging people to really all of us, because we all do it, we all kind of go, oh, this one worked for this client, so I'm going to I'm gonna do that one. Uh, oh, crap, that didn't work. Oh, what have I got next? And so just being aware that we have all these different tools in our toolkit to try not to limit our view to what has worked before or what we think is going to work. And, and I, I love that you really um, focused on encouraging people to broaden their look and also to always, always bring it back to the patient's autonomy and what their goals are. Um, I think that's pretty much a summary. Is that, is there anything else that you'd like to add, Teresa? I think you did a beautiful job of summarizing that. Um, and I think, you know, on behalf of Anthony and I and the whole community of Women's Health Podcast listeners, we just want to say a massive thank you to your time. Um, it's not often that you get someone who, who brings in all these different disciplines and, and puts it together in such a such a fantastic way that is so easy to understand and easy to digest and that is immediately applicable. I think a lot of people will get a ton of value out of this. So thank you so much. And for all those people that might now be doing online sessions and maybe they're wondering what can they do now that they can't use their hands? <laughs> you could use tips FC. That's it. A hundred percent. Um, so where can people find you, Teresa? How can they, uh, message you, email you, get in touch with you so that they can experience more awesomeness from you? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram. My handle is, uh, RX physio. Um, you can message me through there. Um, my email address, I will give it out to you. You guys are welcome to email me if you have any questions or you want to touch base with anything. Um, it's Teresa, T-E-R-E-S-A at rxphysiotherapy.com. Um, that's basically it. Um, Facebook, you can find me on my business page as Rx Physiotherapy. Um, and my personal page um, is Teresa Wasser. Uh, that's it. I don't have Twitter or any other crazy social media things. All right. 
Look, thank you very much again for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, for all of you listening, make sure that you like, subscribe, drop your questions, leave a comment, and uh, Teresa will get back to you. And um, it's fantastic. Thank you very much again. And we'll see you next time after the show. The usual outro is coming Thanks, up. Thanks, well, that's it for this episode. Be sure to hit like if you enjoyed the episode and leave any comments or questions below. We'd really like to hear from you. If you haven't already hit subscribe, please do so now so that you can be kept notified when we release our next episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back with us for another episode of the Women's Health Podcast.